You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. Amen. Let's give it up for Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, Well, very good morning to you. Excited to dive into God's Word and talk about the first fruit of the Spirit, uh, love. I want to talk to you this morning about love in a time of selfishness. Love in a time of selfishness. We are in week two of our summer teaching series called The Spirit in a Time of the Flesh. And here's the big idea of this series. We'll put it up here on the screen. The fruit in our life reveals the roots of our life. This is what we're going to spend all, all summer long tracking down. This big idea right here, that the fruit in our life reveals the roots of our life. You know, so many people look at their life and they're like, I don't like the fruit that my life is producing. Uh, I don't like the mental fruit that's going on. I don't like the emotional fruit that's going on that's being produced in my life. I don't like the relational fruit that's going on in my life. And this summer, we're looking at this reality that the fruit in our life, whether we like it or not, reveals the roots of our life or what our life is rooted down into. And in Galatians chapter 5 that Elizabeth just read for us, we see that fundamentally there are two places that you can root your life. You can root your life down in the flesh, and we're going to talk about what the flesh is here in just a little bit, or you can root your life down in the Spirit of God. And the flesh is what produces so much of the fruits of life that we don't like, that nobody likes, but there's this better way offered to us called the way of the Spirit. So this summer is really about uprooting from the flesh that produces the bad fruit that none of us like. And rooting ourselves in the ways of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can produce new kinds of fruit in our lives. And each week we're going to look at one of the fruits of the Spirit, starting today with the fruit of love, and considering how we can not just respond with our basic human instincts, that's what the Bible calls the flesh, but respond in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And here's why. Here's why we're spending really 11 weeks of our summer tracking this down in in Galatians chapter 5. It's because in a world marked by the flesh, the church must look different. In a world marked by the flesh, the church must look different. And as we move forward into the future, as a church family, we want to be a church marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That goes, man, we don't want the flesh to dominate our life together. We want our life together to be marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the kind of church family that we want to be. So today is about fruit number one. Today is all about love. What is it? How do we grow in it? What is it not? Today is about love. And I want to talk to you about cultivating other-oriented, sacrificial love in a time that is marked by the self, where everybody just wants to pursue what is good for themselves. And in fact, if you pay attention to Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to show you this in just a second, you will notice that all of the fruits of the flesh that are named are profoundly me-centric. They're like all about me. And what we see in that, and I'll show you in just a second in the text, what we see in that is that the default mode of the flesh is to look out for numero uno. It's like, 
It's all about me. This is our default. This is what we slide back into when we're not actively walking with the person of, our, of the Holy Spirit. This is our basic human instinct. And right here in Galatians 5, Paul talks about three categories of selfishness. He talks about sexual selfishness, spiritual selfishness, and social selfishness. I want to show you this in a text. Let's dive into Galatians chapter 5. Look with me starting in verse 19. It says this, now the works of the flesh are obvious, and I love this. Paul's like, you don't have to work hard to know what the flesh is all about. Uh, it's pretty obvious, like we all probably know them. And he starts by giving us three of, the, three, three of the fruits of the flesh that are marked by sexual selfishness. This is fascinating. So I'm going to show you sexual, I'm going to show you spiritual selfishness, and I'm going to show you so, uh, social selfishness. Look at this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Look at this. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, and promiscuity. So he starts here with three sexual sins and shows us how when we operate in the flesh, we leverage sex, even sex, for the self. Uh, in, in fact, what we're doing there is we are inverting the purposes of sex to the self. You see, sex is a good gift from God. We taught on this a few weeks ago. It's not dirty. It's not nasty. It's not something we don't talk about in church. It's a good gift from God, but it's a gift that is meant to serve. It's a gift that's meant to serve your spouse and produce children, right? But what we do in the flesh is we have taken the gift and turned it inside out for selfish purposes. This is the heart of all sexual sin, that we put ourselves at the center. I'll give you a few examples. Porn use is profoundly selfish, where we look at somebody else's body and somebody else's sexual actions, and we use it privately for the self. You see how porn is self-centered sexuality, right? You see that masturbation even, and I know we're dipping into like, you're like, wow, this is like, we're four minutes in, man. You know, it's like we're going masturbation. You know, it's like masturbation. What is masturbation? It's a profoundly selfish use of sex. In fact, C.S. Lewis writes on masturbation, and he talks about in masturbation what we do is we have a harem of imaginary brides and grooms that we leverage for the self. We don't have to love them. We don't have to sacrifice for them. They are in our minds to serve us. You see this in hookups. Hookups are profoundly, a profoundly self-centered use of sex. Instead of giving the gift of sex, we use the gift for ourselves. You guys get the point, right? But he also shows us that we use spirituality selfishly. And only use sexuality selfishly, we use spirituality selfishly. And in fact, what I'm about to show you is the heart of all like new age spirituality. We get this right here at the beginning of verse 20. We get two uh, identifiers of selfish spirituality, idolatry and sorcery. And you're like, are we talking Harry Potter? What are we talking about with sorcery, right? What is this? Well, what these two are all about is it's taking spirituality and putting me at the center instead of God at the center. That's what idolatry and sorcery are all about. Taking spirituality and putting me at the center instead of God at the center. In fact, I've been working through uh, a biography on Tim Keller's life, who recently passed away a few months ago. Incredible read. And one of the things that uh, he points out, and he pointed this out a lot in his ministry in the heart of Manhattan, is that one of the shifts from the world of the Bible into our modern secular world is the shift from God at the center to me at the center. Where we, you know, in the world of the Bible, what would happen is that, like, I exist, here's how they thought, I exist to serve God. This is how the Bible thinks about reality. I exist to serve God. But what we do in modern secular America is we say God exists to serve me. 
And then, in fact, this is what all of our spirituality, all of our religious activity is all about God existing to serve me. This is what's at the heart of the deconstruction movement. God exists to serve me, so when God doesn't serve me and what I think I need, I'm going to abandon God and be angry at him, right? You see this switch. Now, this is what's at the heart of idolatry and sorcery. In idolatry, we worship the self and what serves the self. And in sorcery, what we do is we conjure up little g gods to, and you hear this word in New Age spirituality, manifest what serves the self. And Paul says, that's not Christianity. Like, that's not, what, that's not Christianity. And Paul says, man, God is at the heart of our spirituality, not the self. That's the flesh. But then he introduces, this is the last category I'll show you, then he introduces social selfishness. Social selfishness, where in all of our relational realities, we put the self at the center. Look at this picking up later in verse 20. We see hatreds. This is the fruit of the flesh. Strife, relational strife. Jealousy, where we're like, man, God, you, I don't know if you love me because I want what they have and I'm not getting what they have, so I'm jealous instead of being content. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and then he throws in the, the trash can thing, anything similar, right? It's like, if you think it's part of the flesh, it probably is. He says, I'm warning you about these things. As I warned you before, don't live this way, because those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's my point that I want to show you. The flesh is profoundly selfish. That's it. It's selfish sexually, it's selfish spiritually, it's selfish socially, relationally, it's profoundly selfish. And this selfishness, self-centeredness, me-centric reality is at the heart of the fruit of the flesh. And this is our normal operating system apart from God. This is it. This is what all of, our, uh, all of us are prone to slide back into when we're not proactively walking with God, pursuing, to, pursuing the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the very essence, and you see this, of what ruins not only our lives as selfishness, but also the world. The theologian Jonathan Edwards, writing in the 1700s, says it this way. There's a little deep theology for you. The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in, in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature— and falling, watch this line, falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. He says, when we're in the flesh, when we don't know God, we are under the power, it has a the self has power over us, and government of self-love. Before, and as God created him, or us, him and her, he was exalted and noble. This is how he used to be before we rejected God and rebelled against him, and noble and generous but now he is debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, when we rejected God, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. In other words, in our flesh, we contract into the small, pathetic, insecure, fragile, tiny world of the self. This, this is our tendency. This is where we go, where everything is about me where life is about me and for me. Everything is about self-fulfillment. Like, I have to be true to myself and I'll wreck all the relationships in my life just so I can do what I desire to do. And the reality is when everyone is doing the me thing, it's no wonder it makes for a miserable world and miserable lives and miserable friendships and miserable marriages and miserable work relationships and miserable churches and miserable community groups that in fact misrepresent Jesus to the world. The flesh 
is profoundly self-centered. And so, it's no surprise that when Jesus gets a hold of your life and starts to change you and gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, the very first fruit is the exact opposite of selfishness, and that is self-giving love. It's like this is the first change, this is the fundamental change that Jesus wants to produce in your life, is love. The fruit of love, like, governs all of the other fruits. It's the most important fruit. It's the most written about fruit. It's love. In short, if I could bring that into, like, modern 2023 language, I would say that the one thing Jesus wants to do in our lives is help us get over ourselves. It's like this, where we just, like, collectively get over ourselves and go, man, I'm not the center of the world. I'm not the center of the church. I'm not the center of my workplace. Life is about more than me. This is why in Galatians 5.22, we'll put this up on the screen, it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. It's love. In fact, if you pay attention to the New Testament, you see that other-oriented, sacrificial love becomes the litmus test for whether or not Jesus has truly gotten a hold of your life. It's the litmus test. It's everything in the New Testament. It's like, man, it's not about the amount of religious knowledge that you have, where you can roll into community group and people are like, wow, that person has a lot of theology knowledge. It's not that. That's not the evidence God's looking for. It's not just religious activity where you read your Bible and show up at church and hold the door at Trader Joe's for somebody, trying to be nice. That's not the fruit. We're going to talk about how niceness is not love here in just a second. That's not the fruit. The fruit is other-oriented sacrificial love. This is all over the New Testament. I want to give you a few examples of this. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, somebody walks up to Jesus and they ask Jesus the question. They go, hey, what's the most important commandment? 2023 language, we, we could, you could hear the question asked like this. It's like, whenever you summarize everything, what does God care most about? And look at how Jesus answers this right here. Matthew 22, 30, 37 through 40. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this line. All of the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' uh, way of summarizing the whole Old Testament. The law, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets. The whole Old Testament is about these two things Loving God, vertical love, and loving neighbor, horizontal love. This is it. And you're like, Jesus, thank you for that simplistic answer, you know? It's easy, right? Look at this. We'll go to, we'll go to the next passage here. This is John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus talking about love. We could, I could just quote love passages to you for like 45 minutes right here, but I'm giving you the like top three greatest hits, right? I give you a new command, Jesus says. Love one another just as I have loved you. How is that? We're going to talk about this in a second. Sacrificially. How did Jesus love us? He laid his life down. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, we are in a love crisis. So many people that do not love Jesus, follow Jesus, look at the church, and they go, based on how you guys treat each other, I want nothing to do with that. But here's what I want to say. We can live differently, High Church family. 
We must live differently to represent the God of love well. Look at this next, next uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says this. Dear friends, this is like the epitome. We're going to spend some time in this passage in just a second. This is the epitome. This is like the highlight of the love commands. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, we have to define love. We're going to do that in a minute because we've got to know what love is, right? The one, now notice this in, in verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. It's like, for John, it's that plain. If you don't love people, you don't know God. Why? Because God is love. The fruit of knowing God and walking Him is to produce the fruit of love. God's love, and he's going to talk about what love is. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God has sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists, not, consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us. In other words, the way people see God is by the way we love one another. That's what he's saying. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is it. You get it. Now, as we look at this, like, that might be convicting, but it's not shocking, you know? You might be thinking right now, it's like, okay, you know, it's like, I, I got to get my act together and love some people, you know? I got to love my roommates. I got to love my spouse. got to love my kids, even when they're yelling at me, you know? It's like, I got to love my neighbors, whatever that means. It might be convicting, but it's not shocking, right? And you're, think, you're thinking, man, I get it. It's like I got to love people. That's, that's the point, right? But there's a question whenever we start talking about this that hangs out there that is key for us to answer if we're going to really move toward love and produce the fruit of love. And it's this question right here. It's a massive question. What do we mean by love? Okay, I get it, like, it's the fruit, first fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' whole summary of the Old Testament. It's like the thing that's like, if you don't do this, you don't know God. I get it. But what do we mean by love? And the challenge when we start talking about a virtue like love, feels like, it feels like trying to grab hold of like a, a fog. You know, you're like, what, what is love? so hard for me not to say, baby, don't hurt me after that, you know? <laughs> you guys thought it. It's like, what is love? What do we mean by love? And you start, and you start talking to people, and you talk to a thousand different people, and you get a thousand different answers. It's like last night, I was, uh, I was up super late, preaching on a little bit of adrenaline at an Avett Brothers concert at Red Rocks, right? Any of you there? I, I think a few of you were there. Some of you have told me that you were there last night, and you're not raising your hand right now because you don't want to say that you got home at 1 a.m. last night. But, you know, and they have this song, like the Avera's most famous song is what? It's I and loving you. They say three words that became hard to say. I and love and you. And I'm sitting there going, I'm talking about this in the morning. Why did they become hard to say? What do you mean by I love you? And then you get people, then you get people saying like, I love God, I love this banana bread, I love hummus, I love this girl I'm dating, I love that show, 
And you're like, what do you mean? And then you throw in like, hashtag love is love, and you're like, well, what does that mean? And then you, I'm going to date myself just a little bit uh, for you, then you get former pastors writing books called Love Wins, and you're like, well, what does that mean? And it's like, really, it's really confusing. What do we mean by love? Well, in my experience in Denver, when people talk about love, it's, it's usually in reference to one of three things. And I want to talk about these three things, and I'm going to say, this is not what love is, and I'm going to show you what biblical love is, okay? Sometimes whenever people talk about love, they, they, what they mean is they mean tolerance. Tolerance is love. Now, there's a version of tolerance that we are all for, totally, where we can agree to disagree and not kill each other and get out of each other's crosshairs. You know, it's like, that, that's good. In fact, we need that in a functioning society. We do. But there's a much more common version of tolerance that is actually anti-love. It's actually anti-love. Or it's love turned in on itself. It's actually narcissism what it is whenever we talk about tolerance. It says, and I'm going to be as edgy as I can be here. It says, love as tolerance says this, I will let you do whatever the hell you want to do. And I mean that like literally. I will let you do whatever the hell it is you want to do as long as you let me do whatever the hell I want to do. I will let you create a living hell for yourself and our city, and I will just leave you alone. That's what most people mean by tolerance. I'll let you do what you want to do as long as I can do whatever I want to do, and it's basically just a get-out-of-jail-free card. You do you and let me do me, and let's, let's just move on. Now, all we have to do to expose the logical fallacy of this as love is pick something that everyone agrees is not good. Heroin use. A husband abusing his wife physically. And we go, actually, it would not be loving to tolerate that behavior. You see the logical fallacy in this. Like, that version of tolerance cannot be love. It's actually anti-love. This is why the, the great writer, uh, Jewish writer, uh, survived the Holocaust, Elie Wiesel, uh, wrote the book Night that most of you probably read in high school at some point. He says this, hate isn't the opposite of love, indifference is. And what we're talking about whenever we talk about tolerance is really indifference to self-harm. And we go, that man, that's not, that's not love. A lot of people, uh, you know, if we don't go tolerance, what, we, what a lot of people mean by love is niceness. And we could do this geographically. Uh, I know we have some visitors in the room uh, that are visiting family, and we could do this geographically. For us, as secular urban people who live in downtown Denver and do life, it's like love often means tolerance. But for, for our friends that follow Jesus in the South, here's what it means. It often means just niceness. <laughs> you could do this geographically. It's like I'm just... I mean, I will slaughter somebody behind their back. <laughs> but like, to their face, I'm just going to smile and be nice. But it's like, was Jesus always nice? Certainly not. It's like, niceness is not love. Just smiling at people at work, being cordial. It's like, this is, this is not what we mean by love. But here's the third thing that a lot of people mean whenever they talk about love. They, they think of love as desire. Think of love as desire. And I think this is probably the most prominent use of the word love that is, I think, only a partial part of love 
uh, which you'll see in just a few minutes, but it's certainly not the motivator of love. It's not the beginning of love like a lot of people think it is. Uh, love is desire. Here's love is desire. I'll give you an example. Um, I could say something like, I love the lamb ragu hummus at Softa down on Brighton Boulevard. You guys had the lamb ragu hummus, dude. Get it. Get it. Get it as fast as you can. It's beautiful. I love the lamb ragu hummus at Softa down on Brighton Boulevard. I love it. What am I saying? What am I saying? When I say I love the lamb ragu hummus, I'm talking about love as desire. It's saying, I want to eat it. Okay? It's saying, here's what I want to do. I love it. I want to consume it for my pleasure. This is love as desire. So let me, let me apply this in a different way. So sometimes when a guy is dating a girl, they will say, I love Sally. I love Sally. Any Sallys in the room? Sorry if there are. Yeah, no Sallys. Okay, that's great. We can pick on Sally. Well, we're not picking on Sally. We're picking on Chad, the boyfriend. <laughs> My millennials love that joke, right? Chad says, I love Sally. Love her. Often what Chad is saying about Sally is, I want to consume her for my pleasure. Love is desire. This is how most people use love. I love the band. Loved Red Rocks last night. Love the lamb ragu hummus. Love my boyfriend. A lot of people even use love this way about their spouse. I love my spouse, and I want to consume my spouse as long as they taste good to me. But the second they don't taste good to me, I'm, I'm rolling. This is love as desire. Love has to be more than desire. This isn't enough. But love is defined by Jesus as not tolerance or niceness or desire. So what is it? Well, the Reformed theologian John Frame gives us what I think is the best definition of love. And of course, what I did is I took it and I made it into a Venn diagram for you because uh, I love you guys. And uh, maybe I love myself. Maybe that's where we're at at this point uh, with the Venn diagrams. Um, and of course, uh, you know, it, it, and of course, what, I want to do this because I want to make it simple. John Frame says that biblical love is at the center of three things that are merging together. Allegiance, action, and affection. If you want to understand what love is biblically, you've got to understand the concepts of allegiance, action, and affection. If you want to know what love is, love is allegiance, action, and affection. And I want to show you that it has to be all three of these things. If you just have allegiance and action and you don't have affection, what do you have? You just have dutiful love. And it's like certainly in the Bible, I'm going to show you this, certainly in the Bible, part of love, and a lot of Christians kind of like throw affection out, but certainly in the Bible, like, love is affectionate. It's good. It is emotional. Now, I'm going to argue that that's not the starting place of love, but it is part of love. And if you don't have affection, you just have dutiful love. Over here, if you just have action and affection and you don't have allegiance, you've got fragile love. You've got fragile love. This is where a lot of dating relationships are. This is where a lot of friendships live. This is where, sadly, a lot of marriages live. There's no allegiance. There's just action and affection. And as soon as the action and affection, some of you can look at this, look at your marriage through this lens and you can go, that's what's missing. That's what's missing right there. But if you have action and affection, you don't have allegiance, you just got fragile love. It's super fragile. 
The second, like, that person doesn't take action for you or show you the affection that you desire. You just go, I'm out. There's no allegiance. There's no commitment to it. But then over here, if you just have allegiance and affection and you don't have action, you just have sentimental love. And love is action. We're going to show this. It's, it's the action of Jesus on the cross, and that's what I'm going to show you here in just a second. Love, if you want to understand what biblical love is, love is allegiance, action, and affection. 1 John 4, 8 says this right here. Let's put this up on the screen. 1 John 4, 8 says this. The one who does not love does not know God because, here's the key line, three words, God is love. God is love. This is like the love is the defining character marker of the God of the Bible. It's his essence. If you want to understand what love is, you look at God. That's the point. You don't look at anything else. You don't look at your spouse. You don't look at pastors. You don't look at other Christians because we're always going to mess up. You look at God. If you want to understand what love is, we look at God. And how has God loved us? Let me show you. I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm going to explain it. He has pledged his allegiance to us. He has taken action on our behalf, and he's pouring his affection into our hearts. So let's talk about each of these components and what it looks like for us to grow in each one so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit can grow in us. First, love is allegiance. Love is allegiance. Uh, this is 1 John 4. I want to study this passage really quickly together. It says this. God's love was revealed among us in this way. So he's saying, I want to show you what God's love, God is love, so let me show you what God's love is like. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, and here's allegiance, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. This is love as allegiance. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and we're going to talk about this one in action in just a second, sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So this is amazing, and especially if you're here and you would not consider yourself a Christian, you may be exploring the Christian faith, dipping your toe back in after a few years, you need to hear this, because this is the heart of what Christians call the gospel. It's that God does not love us because we make ourselves lovable. God's love is, we could say it this way, not contingent on you whatsoever. So God does not love us because we are lovable and loved him first and because we get our acts together and stop doing bad things and start doing good things. That's frankly what most people think Christianity is. That's not Christianity. That is, that is religion. What Christianity says is that God loved us even when we hated him. This is why he can also command us to love our enemies, because we were his enemies and said, I want nothing to do with you, and he loved us in that moment. Uh, Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, another example of love is allegiance. For while we were still helpless, so we did not do anything to earn God's love, this is what grace is all about, at the right time, Christ died for the godly. That's not what it says. He died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. It's like, yeah, you're good. You, you know, you, you sacrifice a lot. You're a leader. I'll lay my life down for you. But God proves. Some of you are here and you're wondering if God loves you. And you're wondering if God loves you 
after what you did last week. And you need this line of scripture right here as a word from the Holy Spirit of God for you because God has proven that he loves you. How? For God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, not after we got our life together, Christ died for us. This is love as allegiance. And he was so devoted to us that he decided that he would not give up on us even when we had given up on him. Another Avett Brothers reference, just because I was living my best life last night, but they have a song. They have a song. I printed this out and stapled it in my notes 10 minutes before the service because it was so moving to me last night. They have a song called True Sadness. And any of you know the, the, the song True Sadness? It's a beautiful song about how when you peel the layers of everybody's life back, everybody's broken and everybody's sad. It's a beautiful song. And the song starts with this beautiful illustration of love as allegiance. It says this, you were a friend to me when my wheels were off the track. You have friends like that? That's love as allegiance. You were a friend to me when my wheels were off the track, and though you say there is no need, I intend to pay you back. When my mind was turning loose and all my thoughts were turning black, you shined a light on me, and I intend to pay you back. But I still wake up shaken by dreams, and I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take the time to peel a few layers, and you will find true sadness. This is love as allegiance. It's love when people are at their worst. This is what, like, the world has no category for, (laughs) is love as allegiance. It's a love that the world does not know. It's saying, I will love you not just when you are at your best and have things to give back to me, but when you are at your worst. This is why the marriage vows are so beautiful. For richer or for poorer, I'll love you whether we get rich or we like live in a shack. I'm in. I'm in. If you get fired and we have no money, I'm in. That's love's allegiance. In sickness and in health, if you get sick and you lay in a bed and cannot do anything for me, I will love you. That's love's allegiance. It's beautiful. This is what the Bible calls covenant love, or the Old Testament word for it is hesed. God's hesed love for you. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about it, talks about God's love as allegiance in her uh, kids' storybook Bible called Je- the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says that this is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. <laughs> this is love as allegiance. This is the way God loves you. This is it. Do you know this? I use this illustration um, uh, on Easter Sunday, but most people are just kind of in, they're not even listening to me on Easter Sunday, if we're honest, you know? So it's like, I want to give it to you again. It's Easter, man. You got to, I don't know. But every night when my kids go to bed, uh, we do this family blessing. Uh, and, I, and I get down on the ground, and I ask my girls a few questions. Shep will participate when he can function, you know? <laughs> Uh, he's 10 months old. But I ask my girls a few questions. I say, do you know that mommy and daddy love you? They say yes. Do you know that we love you when you do good things? They say yes. Then I ask them this question, do you know that we love you when you do bad things? They say yes. And I say, do you know that God loves you the same way? They say yes. Sometimes Tyler says no because that's kind of who she is. And I say, you must say yes. (laughs) I'm teaching you 
theology. This is the gospel, Tyler. This is not playtime. Imagine having a pastor as a dad. It's rough. Do you know that God loves you the same way? Yes. And then, and then we say this line. He's, and the girls finish it, steady in his love. He's steady in his love. And I say, rest in that love tonight. This is God's love. Love is allegiance. And what the gospel says is because God loves us this way, covenant love, love is allegiance, this is the way we are sent out to love other people. Love is allegiance. So how do we grow in love as allegiance? Well, we have to answer the question, what do I do when I don't feel like loving? How do we grow in love as allegiance? Well, we have to answer the question, what do I do when I don't feel like loving this hard-to-love person? Because <laughs> people are hard to love. It's really easy to get all kinds of sentimental feelings when you're in church and you're talking about love. I'm going to grow in love. But then you get out there and you get with real people like me and you go, that guy's hard to love. What do I do when I don't feel like loving? Well, this is where we say that love is not primarily an emotion. It's not. It can't be. But love is a decision of the will. Do you know that? Love is a decision of the will. It's a decision you have to make. Think about this. God commands that we love our neighbor. He commands it. He goes, this is not optional. This is not like, if you get around to it, maybe do something sacrificial this week. It's a command. Think about this. God cannot command emotion. He can't. He can't command you to feel a certain way. Feelings are come and go, they're wild. It's like, most of the time I wish I felt a different way than what I did. God cannot command what you feel. He only commands decisions of the will. This is why C.S. Lewis says this. Christian love is an affair of the will. So how do you grow in love? Let me say this. You decide in the power of the Holy Spirit, I will be a person of love. Love is allegiance. Second, love is action. Love is action. Biblical love is about taking action on behalf of others. It's not just, and we're going to harp on this, and then we're going to get to feeling last. It's not just sentimental feeling. It has teeth. It requires something of you. It's sacrifice. And we see this kind of love in the cross of Jesus Christ. Back to 1 John, uh, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way, so you can see what love is like. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, this is allegiance, but that he loved us. And watch this, action. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love as action. God did not just say he loved, God does not just say he loves you. He acted on your behalf to meet the needs that you had in your weakest moment. In other words, God's love was so committed to us that it drove him to take action on our behalf and meet our deepest need. What is, our deep, what is your deepest need? It's the atonement for our sin through the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. It's that we've rebelled against God, we're under the wrath of God, Jesus comes, dies on the cross, receives the wrath of God in our place so that we can receive the love of God. This is love, it's sacrifice, it's action. 
This is why Jesus says this. We've already talked about this. Uh, John 13, 34. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you. So he gives us a standard of our love now. And the standard, oh, this is hard, is the cross. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Fleming Rutledge says this. Sentimental, overly spiritualized love is not capable of the sustained, unconditional agape of Christ shown on the cross. Only, I love this quote, only from the perspective of the crucifixion can the true nature of Christian love be seen over against all that the world calls love. Is it? So how do we grow in loving action? Well, we have to get rid of all other vaguely romantic, sentimental versions of love and understand that love is a, this, this goes all the way back to the beginning, love is a crucifixion of the self. That's what it is. <laughs> it's going, I will, in the power of the Holy Spirit, get over myself and put other people's needs before my own. This is love as action. This is love as action. The popular way to say this is that, and it's very cheesy, is that love is a verb. And it is a verb. It's taking sacrificial action on behalf of other people, even people who seem unlovable. And this is massive. This is why Jesus commands us to love our enemies because we have to love people who are unlovable. So here's what I would say. In your heart, plan allegiance to a few people and then ask, how can I sacrifice for them this week? That's love. But that's not all love is because love is also affection. This is the final version. Final version of love. Final aspect of love. Love is affection. Though feelings aren't the fullness of love, or even, and I want to make this very clear, even the beginning of love. Feelings are not the beginning of love. Love would actually be incomplete without talking about them. You hear the popular line, and we just used it, love is a verb, but I love that Dane Ortland points out love is also a noun in the New Testament over 100 times. So it's not only a verb. Here, love is a verb. You hear Bob Goff, and it's great. A big go- Bob Goff. Love does, and it's like love does do. You know? But it's also a noun. It's also affection. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear that God is affectionate toward his people. He's affectionate toward you. He loves you. In Zephaniah, he sings songs of love over his people. In Ephesians 3, it says that the Holy Spirit of God, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is pour God's love into our hearts. In other words, he's there to remind you that God loves you and to pour the affection of God into your heart. Uh, You look at Jesus, and Jesus looks over Jerusalem, the city that has walked away from the living God, and what does he do? He weeps over the city because he's affectionate for people. Love is affection. But here's where I want to be clear. Most of the time, we are waiting on the feeling of affection before we make the decision of allegiance and action. You guys with me? Most of the time, what we're doing is we're waiting on the feeling of affection to bubble up before we make the decision of allegiance and action. And it has to be the other way around. Allegiance and action actually lead to affection. C.S. Lewis uh, is helpful here again. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot on love. He says this, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. So like, don't go home, sit on your couch and go, 
I want to feel loved. He goes, it would be quite wrong to do that. That's not how this works. Some people, I, lo- I love this little section because he talks about those of you who are grumpy by nature. And he's going to say, you still, unfortunately, are commanded to love. You know, he says this, some people are cold by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it is no more a sin than having bad digestion is a sin. I love that line. And it does not cut them out from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning love. So even if your temperament is grumpy, we're going to talk about joy next week. You know, maybe your temperament needs to change a little bit. But even if you're grumpy, you still have to love people. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we will find one of the greatest secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Consequently, though, Christian love sounds a very cold thing to people whose heads are full of sentimentality, and though it is quite distinct from affection, yet it leads to affection. Love that. I love that quote. It's worth noting that what the world does is exactly the opposite of true love. The world says, if I feel affection, I will take action, and my actions will lead to allegiance. But biblical love reverses the pattern of the world. This is the way of the Spirit in a time of the flesh, and says, we pledge allegiance to people because they are made in the image of God and are of tremendous value. Even if they are unlovable and even if we perceive them as an enemy, we will take sacrificial action on their behalf knowing that this is how affection grows. (laughs) Some of you are like, man, I want to feel love. Well, the reason you don't feel love is because you never do anything loving. And it's like, no, we go, man, allegiance, action, then affection. Allegiance, action, then affection. Ultimately, this is the way we are called to love one another. This is the very first fruit of the Holy Spirit. He wants to produce in us self-giving, other-oriented, sacrificial love. And the reason we love this way is because this is the way we have been loved by Jesus. You cannot give something that you don't have. So some of you are here and you're like, man, I'm going to go be more loving, but you don't know Jesus And we're saying, no, 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 don't get this backwards. You need to receive the love of Jesus before you can give the love of Jesus. Because this is the love of Jesus. Jesus was so committed to our joy and our good that when we were at our worst, and still now when we are at our worst, he does not stop loving us. He does not quit on us. And what did he do? He takes action on our behalf. He comes, he becomes a human being, he fulfills the law where we have broken it, and ultimately he goes to a cross to die the death that we deserve so that we could live. This is what love is. And now the Holy Spirit of God pours the love of God into our hearts, saying, you are my beloved son and beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And this, the gospel and the person of the Holy Spirit, is what produces the fruit of other-oriented sacrificial love. So let me end with a question, and I'm going to pray. Who is God calling you to move toward in love this week? Who is God calling you to move toward in love this week? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel that says you pledged your allegiance to us, that you have covenanted to love us that you will not quit on us. It's a never-failing, never-stopping, always-unending love. 
This is how you love us. We thank you that your love is not sentimental and vague, but you've proven your love for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. That you loved us enough to die for us. And now you, through the Holy Spirit, are affectionate toward us. And so come, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd pour out fresh measures of the affection of the Father over the men and women in this room. Come, Holy Spirit, and produce the fruit of love in our lives. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.